Chapter Four of Fast in the Ice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Fast in the Ice by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter Four. Difficulties, troubles, and dangers. For some hours, the brig proceeded onward with a freshening breeze. Winding and turning in order to avoid the lumps of ice, many of the smaller pieces were not worth turning out of the way of the mere weight of the vessel being sufficient to push them aside. Up to this time, they had succeeded in steering clear of everything without getting a thump, but they got one at last, which astonished those among the crew who had not been in the ice before. The captain, Gregory, and Dicey were seated in the cabin at the time taking tea. Ned Dawkins, the steward, an active little man, was bringing in a teapot with a second supply of tea. In his left hand, he carried a tray of biscuit. The captain sat at the head of the table, Dicey at the foot, and the doctor at the side. Suddenly, a tremendous shock was felt. The captain's cup of tea leaped away from him and flooded the center of the table. The doctor's cup was empty. He seized the table with both hands and remained steady, but Dicey's cup happened to be at his lips at the moment and was quite full. The effect on him was unfortunate. He was thrown violently on his back, and the tea poured over his face and drenched his hair as he lay sprawling on the floor. The steward saved himself by dropping the bread tray and grasping the handle of the cabin door. So violent was the shock that the ship's bell was set a ringing. Beg pardon, gentlemen," cried the first mate, looking down the skylight. "I forgot to warn you. The ice is getting rather thick around us, and I had to charge a lump of it. It's all very well to beg pardon," said the captain, "but that won't mend my crockery, or dry my head," growled Mister Dicey. "It's as bad as if I'd been dipped overboard. It is." Before Mister Dicey's grumbling remarks were finished, all three of them had reached the deck. The wind had freshened considerably, and the brig was rushing in a somewhat alarming manner among the floes. It required the most careful attention to prevent her striking heavily. If it goes on like this, we shall have to reduce sail," observed the captain. "See, there is a neck of ice ahead that will stop us." This seemed to be probable, for the lane of water along which they were steering. Was just ahead of them, stopped by a neck of ice that connected two floe pieces. The water beyond was pretty free from ice, but this neck or mass seemed so thick that it became a question whether they should venture to charge it or shorten sail. Stand by the fore and main topsail braces," shouted the captain. "Aye, aye, sir." Now, Mister Mansell," he said with a smile, "we have come to our first real difficulty." What do you advise? Shall we back the topsails, or try what our little hope is made of, and charge the enemy? Charge," answered the mate. "Just so," said the captain, hastening to the bow to direct the steersman. "Port your helm, steady." The brig was now about fifty yards from the neck of ice, tearing through the water like a racehorse. In another moment, she was up to it and struck it fair in the middle. The stout little vessel quivered to her keel under the shock, but she did not recoil. She split the mass into fragments, 
and, bearing down all before her, sailed like a conqueror into the clear water beyond. "'Well done, Hope,' said the captain, as he walked aft, while a cheer burst from the men. "'I think she ought to be called the Good Hope after this,' said Tom Gregory. "'If she cuts her way through everything as easily as she has cut through that neck of ice, we shall reach the North Pole itself before winter.' "'If we reach the North Pole at all,' observed Mr. Dicey, "'I'll climb up to the top of it and stand on my head, I will.' The second mate evidently had no expectation of reaching that mysterious pole, which men have so long and so often tried to find in vain. "'Heavy ice ahead, sir,' shouted Mr. Mansell, who was at the masthead with a telescope. "'Where away?' "'On the weather-bow, sir.' The pack seems open enough to push through, but the large bergs are numerous. The hope was now, indeed, getting into the heart of those icy regions where ships are in constant danger from the floating masses that come down with the ocean currents from the far north. In sailing along, she was often obliged to run with great violence against the lumps so large they caused her whole frame to tremble, stout though it was. "'Shall we smash in the lump, or will it stave in our bows?' was a question that frequently ran in the captain's mind. Sometimes ice closed round her and squeezed the sides so that her beams cracked. At other times, when a large field was holding her fast, the smaller pieces would grind and rasp against her as they went past, until the crew fancied the whole of the outer sheathing of planks had been scraped off.' Often she had to press close to icebergs of great size, and more than once a lump as large as a good-sized house fell off the ice-fields and plunged into the sea close to her side, causing her to rock violently on the waves that were raised by it. Indeed, the bergs are dangerous neighbors, not only from this cause, but also on account of their turning upside down at times, and even falling to pieces so that Captain Harvey always kept well out of their way when he could, but this was not always possible. The little brig had a narrow escape one day from the falling of a berg. It was a short time after that day on which they had the game of football. They passed in safety through the floes and bergs that had been seen that evening, and got into open water beyond, where they made good progress before falling in with ice. But at last they came to a part of Baffin's Bay, where a great deal of ice is always found. Here the pack surrounded them, and compelled them to pass close to a berg, which was the largest they had fallen in with up to that time. It was jagged in form, and high rather than broad. Great peaks rose up from it like the mountain-tops of some wild highland region. It was several hundred yards off the weather-beam when the brig passed, but it towered so high over the masts that it seemed to be much nearer than it was. There was no apparent motion in this berg, and the waves beat and rolled upon its base, just as they do on the shore of an island. In fact, it was as like an island as possible, or rather like a mountain planted in the sea, only it was white instead of green. There were cracks and rents and caverns in it, just as there are on a rugged mountainside all of which were of a beautiful blue colour. There were also slopes and crags and precipices, down which the water of the melted ice constantly flowed in wild torrents. Many of these were equal to small rivulets, 
and some of the waterfalls were beautiful. The berg could not have measured less than a mile round the base, and it was probably two hundred feet high. It is well known that floating ice sinks deep, and that there is about eight or ten times as much of it below the water as there is above water. The reader may therefore form some idea of what an enormous mass of ice this berg was. The crew of the Hope observed, in passing, that lumps were continually falling from the cliffs into the sea. The berg was evidently in a very rotten and dangerous state, and the captain ran the brig as close to the pack on the other side as possible, in order to keep out of its way. Just as this was done, some great rents occurred, and suddenly a mass of ice larger than the brig fell from the top of a cliff into the sea. No danger flowed from this, but the mass thus thrown off was so large as to destroy the balance of the berg, and to the horror of the sailors, the huge mountain began to roll over. Fortunately, it fell in a direction away from the brig. Had it rolled toward her, no human power could have saved our voyagers. The mighty mass went over with a wild, hollow roar, and new peaks and cliffs rose out of the sea. As the old ones disappeared, with great cataracts of uplifted brine pouring furiously down their sides. Apart from its danger, this was an awful sight. Those who witnessed it could only gaze in solemn silence. Even the most careless among them must have been forced to recognize the might and majesty of God in the event. As well as his mercy in having led them to the right side of the berg at such a dangerous moment. But the scene had not yet closed. For some time the ice mountain rocked gradually to and fro, raising a considerable swell on the sea, which all around was covered with the foam caused by this tremendous commotion. In a few minutes several rents took place. Sounding like the reports of great guns. Rotten as it was, the berg could not stand the shock of its changing of position, for it had turned fairly upside down. Crack after crack took place, with deafening reports. Lumps of all sizes fell from its sides. There was a roar, long, continued like thunder. A moment after, the whole berg sank down in ruins. And with a mighty crash fell flat upon the sea. The hope was beyond the reach of danger, but she rose and sank on the swell caused by the ruin of this berg for some time after. It was on the afternoon of the same day that the brig received her first really severe nip from the ice. She had got deep into the pack and was surrounded on all sides by large bergs. Some of these being high, like the one that has just been described, others low and flat, but of great extent. One not far off was two miles long, and its glittering walls rose about fifteen feet above the sea. The sky was brighter than usual at the time, and this was owing to one of those strange appearances which one sees of in the Arctic regions than in any other part of the world. The sun shone with unclouded splendor, and around it were three mock suns, almost half as bright as the sun itself, one on each side and one directly above it. Learned men call these bright spots 
Perihelia. Sailors called them sun-dogs. They were connected together with a ring of light which entirely encircled the sun, but the lower edge of it was partly lost on the horizon. Although this was the first time that these mock suns had been seen by Gregory and some others of the crew of the Hope, little attention was paid to them at the time, because of dangerous positions into which the brig had been forced. The pack had again closed all around her, obliging her to take shelter in the lee of a small berg, which, from its shape, did not seem likely to be a dangerous protector. There was a small bay in the berg. Into this the brig was warped, and for some time she lay safely here. It was just large enough to hold her, and a tongue of ice projecting from the foot of it kept off the pressure of the sea-ice. Nevertheless, a look of anxiety rested on the captain's face after the ice-anchors had been made fast. "'You don't seem to like our position, Captain,' said young Gregory, who had been watching the doings of the men, and now and then lent them a hand. "'I don't, Tom. The plaque is closing tight up, and this berg may prove an enemy instead of a friend, if it forces into our harbour here. Let us hear what our mate thinks of it.' "'What say you, Mr. Mansell? Shall we hold on here, or warp out and take our chances in the pack?' "'Better hold on, sir,' answered the mate gravely. "'The pack is beginning to grind. We should get a tight embrace, I fear, if we went out. Here we may do well enough, but everything depends on that tongue.' He looked, as he spoke, towards the point of ice which extended in front of the brig's stern, and guarded the harbour from the outer ice in that direction. The tongue was not a large one, and it was doubtful whether it could stand the pressure that was increasing every minute. The pack was indeed beginning to grind, as the mate had said, for, while we were looking at it, the edges of two floes came together with a crash about fifty yards from the berg. They ground together for a moment with a harsh, growling sound, and then the two edges were suddenly forced up to a height of about fifteen or twenty feet. Next moment they fell on the closed-up ice, and lay there in a mound, or hummock, of broken masses. "'That's how a hummock is formed, Dr. Gregory,' said Mr. Dicey, looking uncommonly wise. "'You'll see more things here in five minutes, by means of your own eyes, than ye can learn from books in a year. There's nothing like seeing. Seeing is believing, you know. I wouldn't give an ounce of experience for a ton of hearsay.' "'Come on, Mr. Dicey, don't run down book-learning,' said Gregory. "'If a man only knew about things he had seen, he would know very little.' Before the second mate could reply, the captain shouted to the men, "'Bear a hand with the ice-poles!' The whole crew answered to the call, and each man, seizing a long pole, stood ready for action. The tongue to which I have referred more than once had broken off, and the ice was rushing in. The bay was full in a minute, and although the men used their ice-poles actively, and worked with a will, they could not shove the pieces past them. The hope was driven, bow on to the berg. Then there was a strain, a terrible creaking and groaning of the timbers, as if the good little vessel were complaining of the pressure. All at once there was a loud crack. The bow of the brig lifted a little and she was forced violently up the sloping side of the berg. Twice this happened, and then she remained stationary. 
high and dry, out of the water. End of chapter 4